This next section is called The Contribution of Absorption to the Progress of Insight. And uh, it carries on uh, from the, the previous paragraph. So I'll just read the last couple of sentences of that because it uh, leads into the theme that he's developing here. This discourse, that's the uh, Yuganada Sutta, clearly shows that although some practitioners will build up concentration first and then turn to insight, others can follow the reverse procedure. It would do little justice to these passages if one were to limit the approach to realization to only one of these sequences, presuming that the development of concentration invariably has to precede the development of insight. So, uh, <clears throat> as we were looking at uh, yesterday, uh, and, and what this particular passage refers to is that the, uh, uh, the rather than concentration necessarily and absolutely preceding insight, um, that the uh, they are sort of mutually supportive qualities. And as um, uh, it says in the Yuganada Sutta, that uh, sometimes it's the uh, the case that the insight precedes. Concentration. And I was also talking about that um, uh, famous Dhamma talk of Lung Dhamma Habua's Wisdom uh, Conditions Samadhi, and uh, <coughs> and that uh, this is the the theme of the say the mutual dependency and supportive quality of of, uh, of uh, concentration and uh, and insight together. Well, nevertheless, in many discourses, the Buddha pointed out that the cultivation of absorption is particularly conducive to realization. The development of deep concentration leads to a high degree of mastery over the mind. Not only does absorption attainment entail the temporary removal of the hindrances, and those hindrances, as most people will uh, be aware, these are sense desire, karma chanda, um, uh, ill will, biapada, uh, and then uh, uh, restlessness, udacha kukucha, uh, dullness, dinamita, and doubt, vichikicha. Those are the five obstacles to uh, to samadhi, or five hindrances, the nivarana. Not to be mis- mistaken for nirvana. One is nivarana, and the other is nibbana. So they might sound like each other, but they're, uh, they are um, uh, opposites. So, not only does absorption attainment entail the temporary removal of the hindrances, it also makes it much more difficult for them to invade the mind on later occasions. On emerging from deep concentration, the mind is, quote, malleable, workable, and steady. Those are terms that are used in many, many suttas. So that one can easily direct it to seeing things as they truly are. And there's a a passage where the Buddha praises the Venerable Sariputta's skill in meditation where he says, just as if um, uh, someone in the royal household, they could choose that uh, in the morning they take this particular set of clothes and then midday they change out of those and they they choose another set of clothes and they put those on and in the afternoon uh, they take those off and put another set of clothes on. So to in exactly the same way, the Venerable Sariputta can just choose which state of mind he wants to absorb his attention into and what state of uh, what, what quality of attainment he wishes to, um, to abide in with uh, with equal facility of just picking through the cupboard and choosing what clothes you want to wear.
Not only that, when things are seen as they truly are, by a calm and malleable mind, this vision affects the deeper layers of the mind. Such a vision goes far beyond a superficial intellectual appreciation, because, owing to the receptivity and malleability of the mind, insights will be able to penetrate into the deeper regions of the mind and thereby bring about an inner change. So that's also that uh, um, some uh, some uh, different teachings, not necessarily in the suttas, but uh, in the uh, different meditation teachers will refer or compare um, the development of samadhi concentration to having uh, like a powerful light. So if you have a uh, in, in Thailand, in particular, living in the forest, the carrying you often carrying a torch, a flashlight around. So <laughs> there's a lot of flashlight. Uh, analogies that, that come up and so uh, having a, uh, a mind that can concentrate uh, very uh, very easily and very strongly is like having a torch with really good batteries or, and got a nice strong strong uh, bulb in it so that when you, you turn it on you can see really clearly, clearly into the forest and along the path for a long distance um, whereas if your concentration is not so strong or is not so um, stable then it's like having a, a, a torch with a, a weak battery that uh, you can see and you can just you see uh, the path right in front of you but you can't see terribly far into the distance and the light isn't isn't particularly bright but you, you can see enough to, to make your way the advantages of developing absorption concentration are not only that it provides a stable and receptive state of mind for the practice of insight meditation the experience of absorption is one of intense pleasure and happiness brought about by purely mental means which thereby automatically eclipses any pleasure arising in dependence on material objects thus absorption functions as a powerful antidote to sensual desires by divesting them of their former attraction in fact according to the chula dukkha kanda sutta wisdom alone does not suffice to overcome sensuality but needs the powerful support available through the experience of absorption. The Buddha himself, during his own quest for awakening, overcame the obstruction caused by sensual desires only, develop, only by developing absorption. And uh, there's a, a sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, the, um, <coughs> the Magandhya Sutta, where the Buddha is speaking to uh, a layman, uh, Magandhya, who's quite a, a sort of life-affirmer and a sensualist type who's a... Uh, um, can't understand why anyone would want to, would want to renounce, uh, renounce anything and can't really relate to that side of, of spiritual practice. And the Buddha makes this comparison to, to Magandhya and, and the Venerable Analyo quotes the same, same passage here saying that, that he's not interested in sensual pleasure because he knows of a happiness which is much higher. And he said, so Magandhya, um, what do you think? Do, uh, the other pleasures of the... Um, the, the heavenly realms, so the Tavatinsa heaven, are they superior to the, to the human world? Would uh, a Deva prince living in the Tavatinsa heaven, enjoying himself in the Nandana grove, would, would he be interested in the, the worldly happiness of, say, a rich merchant down, uh, down here in the, the human world? And, and the Magandhi says, well, no, of course not, because enjoying the pleasures of the, 
the heavenly realm, the Tavatinsa heaven in the uh, in the Nandana grove, it would be far more enjoyable, far more delightful. You just wouldn't wouldn't be interested in in uh, the uh, human pleasures because the uh, the pleasure of a of a Devaraja up in the that um, the Nandana grove would be infinitely uh, superior and more enjoyable and delightful. And uh, the Buddha says, well, similarly, uh, uh, Magandhya, it's not because I despise or, or um, dislike worldly pleasures. It's because I know of pleasures that are, are um, infinitely higher and more refined that I'm, I'm just not interested in that, uh, that worldly pleasure. And so it's uh, through knowing something which is superior and more, uh, more delightful, more refined, that um, you know, that's uh, the, the reason for the, the um, say, the, the renunciation of sensual pleasures. So that this is a, an important point. If you know something that is is um, superior, it's no, it's no effort to, to give it up. It's not really a giving up. It's just you're no longer interested because you've got something far more pleasing and, and uh, say, um, comforting, more, um, uh, say, more enjoyable that's already available. So uh, it's it's not a. There's no sense of lack or um, being diminished because of not having the, uh, uh, those other sense desires that, that it's not interesting to you anymore, just like probably uh, <coughs> any of us who, um, when we were children, we were very fond of our toys, you know, our, um, our particular sets of building blocks or dolls or, or uh, toy um, animals or soldiers or whatever uh, we had. But um, as adults, it's, it's no... Uh, you don't. I would imagine nobody here feels any lack of not having your, your favourite stuffed dog, or your 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 building those those um, building blocks. Um, you don't feel a sense of being diminished because you're not uh, you're not as a as a Buddhist monk. You're not allowed to carry around your action man or your GI Joe. Or, uh, I don't think any of the nuns are missing Barbie dolls. Uh, you know, it's like well, no, of course not. It's ridiculous. And so this is what the Buddha's point saying to Magandhi. It's like, it's not a loss. There's nothing. It's just it's just not interesting anymore. Deep concentration promotes inner stability and integration. In this way, the experience of deep concentration fulfills an important role in fortifying the ability to withstand the destabilizing effect of those experiences that might be encountered during advanced states of insight meditation. Without a calm and integrated mind able to withstand the impact of such experiences, um, and I think in, that, in respect to that he's talking about um, uh, the um, sometimes with, uh, in insight meditation that there's this experience of dissolution or that everything is there's a clear seeing or a realization of everything as being unstable and and um, uh, and without intrinsic value or meaning and so that can be quite startling or unsettling uh, uh, that uh, or the sense of of uh, of former references for stability and suddenly whisked away in that the sense that well nothing is stable, nothing is hold to, held in together, everything is disintegrating um, and that uh, that experience of uh, of disintegration is a, a an aspect of uh, of insight and it's liberating in its own respect, but if the mind is attached to well this is this is solid, this world and this body and this this personality, and then when that Sense of uh, I or the body and the material world is, is seen as, as empty and 
void of substance is dissolving, then that can be startling. So he's, uh, one of the things he's saying here is that concentration uh, abilities help to sustain the attention and not, the, uh, say, lose one's balance. Spiritual balance when the, those kind of experiences might arise. Without a calm and integrated mind, able to withstand the impact of such experiences, a practitioner might lose the balanced stance of observation and become overwhelmed by fear, anxiety or depression. The development of mental calm thus builds up a healthy degree of self-integration as a supportive basis for the development of insight. Another example that I give um, is, say, um, if you are taking exercise and um, you... uh, uh, you uh, you going for a, a run for like five miles a day or ten miles a day um, to run for a mile is really easy because you're already doing five miles or ten miles a day so a, a one mile run is is really nothing it doesn't really register as any kind of big uh, big effort or great exertion because you're used to doing five or ten miles a day whereas if you haven't run for the last ten years <laughs> then running a mile is like oh, how much further? Oh my goodness! Oh, I'm going to die. My lungs are going to give out. Oh, my legs! What's happening? It's it's a quite a major exertion. At least if your bodies are anything like mine, and uh, it's quite uh, it's, uh, stressful and difficult. So in a similar way, if uh, uh, when people ask me about the benefits or the the usefulness of developing deep states of concentration, uh, w- what I say is is rather like. A physical exercise, if you have developed the ability to, to enter second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, um, then it makes it that much easier, it makes it a piece of cake to, to just sustain the attention at the level of, of uh, access concentration, um, or as I was mentioning before, like Ajahn Man recommended, that to sustain the concentration at the level where you can watch the arising and passing away of the five khandhas, so that, that's the the sort of the prime, the most fertile region for developing insight. It's like the, the warm tide pools of the, of the mind where it's sort of the, the borderline between concentration and you know, a, a calm and focused mind and a, just a general flow of activity where the, it's like the, the, the seashore where you have the tide pools where the sort of fertile um, ground for the development of life is richest in exactly the same way in the, in the mind when there's enough concentration to keep the attention on the present and to watch the arising and passing of feelings and perceptions, thoughts, you know, the material changes of the material world, and so that uh, if uh, you you are capable of concentrating to a deeper level, it means uh, that it's very easy to sustain the level of concentration at that access, that uh, um, uh, upachara samadhi, neighborhood concentration, uh, if that's the maximum that you're capable of doing. Like if you, uh, then, it, then it's really hard work and, and really testing just to, to sustain the attention at that, uh, at that level and to, to not get distracted by the different khandhas, the ones that are liked or disliked or interesting or uninteresting or uh, frightening or, um, uh, or unexpected or, or whatever. That, so you're at full stretch just to, in terms of concentration to, to sustain attention. So... Um, that uh, when people say or ask me, you know, is it is it worthwhile trying to develop jhana or develop deep states of, con- deep states of concentration? That's the the point that I, I 
usually make. I, I tend to repeat myself a lot on these things. <laughs> so uh, that's uh, the, uh, I, personally I feel is that the great advantage is that it gives that a, a kind of um, uh, strength or what you can call a, a robustness that you, you can um, uh, deal uh, happily, comfortably with a, a wide variety of experience without the attention getting uh, distracted because you're not you're not at full stretch to to sustain the concentration at that level. Clearly, there are substantial advantages to be gained when the development of insight is supported and counterbalanced by the development of samatha or calm. The experience of higher forms of happiness and the concomitant degree of personal integration are benefits that show the development of samatha makes its own substantial contribution to progress along the path. This importance is expressed vividly in the discourses, with the statement that one who has respect for the Buddha and his teaching will automatically hold concentration in high regard. That's from the Anguttara. On the other hand, one who looks down on the development of concentration thereby only approves of those who have an unsteady mind. That's also in the Anguttara. And nevertheless, it needs to be said that the Buddha was also keenly aware of potential shortcomings of deep states of concentration. The attainment of absorption can turn into an obstacle on the path to realization. Sorry, on, into an, uh, can turn into an obstacle on the path to realization if such an attainment becomes a cause for pride or an object of attachment. As per that the story about the Mahabua. The satisfaction and pleasure experienced during absorption, though facilitating the relinquishment of worldly pleasures, can make it more difficult to arouse the dissatisfaction and disenchantment required for the complete relinquishment of everything that leads up to realization. The Mara Sanyutta even reports a casualty of concentration meditation. A monk committed suicide because he had several times failed to stabilize his concentrative attainment. This was Venerable Godika, and um, on the, the note that um, goes along with this, it says, uh, the monk Godika committed suicide because on six successive occasions he'd attained and lost temporary liberation of the mind, which according to the Sangyutta Nikaya commentary refers to a mundane attainment i.e. some concentrative attainment. The commentary explains that his repeated loss of the attainment was because of illness. According to a statement made by the Buddha after the event, um, happily, uh, Godika died as an arahant, and the commentary suggests that, that was uh, because his realization took place at the moment of his death. That's one of those interesting stories. Um, uh, but uh, the, it's the only time that the Buddha uh, ever uh, praises or um, expresses approval for someone committing suicide is when someone is an arahant and they're suffering from from a, a extreme illness and they choose to end their life um, out of a sense of not wanting to be a a, a burden to their their spiritual companions. So there's a, a few instances like with Venerable Godika and uh, Vakali, uh, where the the Buddha um, uh, does not. Uh, criticize or says that their their death is blameless, even though they they took their own life. It's a, a, a substantial issue in its own right, but we'll leave, leave that for the time being.
that's the end of that section. Uh, any particular questions or comments on that? Yes. Integration. Well, uh, integration, integrating calm and insight. Um, well, I think in a way it's rather like that um, that theme of uh, or that that uh, mode of expression that Ajahn Chah would use about using them uh, calm and insight, samatha and vipassana, and not really thinking them, uh, thinking of them as separate and uh, independent qualities, but seeing how they they work together. And they're both aspects of the, of the same mind. Um, the next section talks about that a little bit more. But um, that, uh, in a way, the, that quality of, of uh, respecting their relatedness, that you can't really have insight without some concentration, you can't really have concentration without some insight. And I guess that in terms of integration, it's sort of acknowledging that that's the case and then actively working with that uh, and... Uh, uh, say consciously using the capacity to to focus as a way of supporting insight and the and using the reflective capacity to support concentration. And I, I think it, it's sort of going against that. I'm just going to concentrate. I'm just going to summata, summata, summata. That's all I'm interested in. You know. Or like no, no, no. I'm just this is. I'm 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 only interested in insight. I don't want to do any. Concentration. Just you know, I just want to aim for for vipassana, and uh, so uh, in a way, it's counteracting that. Uh, I would say false division into like this is completely separate thing from from that. That the concentration is a totally separate thing from from insight, but rather um, integrating them as being uh, conscious of their related nature and and actively using that, putting putting that relatedness. Of those qualities to work, like the, like the the match, and the candle in, the, in Ajahn Chah's image. The, the match is represents insight, um, gives you the light, but doesn't have much fuel. And the candle <coughs> is like represents samatha, has the fuel, but if it's not a light, you can't see in the dark with a candle that's not lit. So putting the match to the candle, then the, the two work together. So this next section, it's the last section of this chapter. Is called Calm and Insight. The central point that emerges when considering the relationship between calm and insight is the need for balance. Since a concentrated mind supports the development of insight and the presence of wisdom in turn facilitates the development of deeper levels of concentration, calm, samatha, and insight, vipassana, are at their best when developed in skillful cooperation. There you go. <laughs> Considered from this perspective, the controversy over the necessity or dispensability of absorption of abilities for gaining a particular level of realization is to some extent based on a misleading premise. This uh, controversy, or controversy, there's a, con- there's a controversy about how you pronounce the word properly, of course. <laughs> this controversy takes for granted that the whole purpose of calmness meditation is to gain the ability to enter absorption as a stepping stone for the development of insight, 
a sort of preliminary duty that either needs or does not need to be fulfilled. The discourses offer a different perspective. Here, calm and insight are two complementary aspects of mental development. The question of practicing only insight meditation does not arise, since the important function of calmness meditation as a practice in its own right is never reduced to its auxiliary role in relation to insight meditation. So that you, you never find the, 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 uh, the teachings talking about it solely as a support for, for insight. But <coughs> it's um, uh, fre- uh, frequently uh, referred to as a, as a practice in its own right. This need for both calm and insight on the path to realization leads me on to another issue. Some scholars have understood these two aspects of meditation to represent two different paths, possibly even leading to two different goals. They assume that the path of samatha proceeds via the ascending series of absorptions to the attainment of the cessation of cognition and feeling, sanya vedayata nirodha, and thence to the cessation of passion. In contrast to this, the path of insight, at times mistakenly understood to be a process of pure intellectual reflection, supposedly leads to a qualitatively different goal, the cessation of ignorance. And he quotes uh, um, references from De La Vallée Poussin, Gombrich, Griffith, uh, Pandey and Schmidhausen, and someone called uh, Anvetter. Who, uh, so this is exactly the kind of thing that scholars love to have opinions about. And I think Venerable Anadio is very politely addressing these honourable scholars. And, <laughs> and um, you know, people come up with their different readings of certain passages. And, um, and then there's also a whole um, uh, sc- long scholastic debates about whether Bodhi is the same as uh, the realization that the word Bodhi, enlightenment, is the same as as liberation, vimuti, or uh, whether it's the same as uh, the realization of nibbana, and sort of acres and acres of, pa- of paper have been covered with <laughs> with print about uh, bodhi is not the same as as, in, uh, as uh, liberation. Or, um, and so this is about these um, the path of wisdom and the path of concentration uh, as being uh, taken, as he says. Um, uh, supposedly leading to a qualitatively different goal. A passage from the Anguttara Nikaya does indeed relate the practice of samatha to the destruction of passion and the practice of vipassana to the destruction of ignorance. The distinction between the two is expressed by the expressions freedom of the mind, ceto vimuti, and freedom by wisdom, panya vimuti. So uh, ceto, the uh, ceta is uh, uh, ceto refers to mind there, um, and panyavimuti. Sometimes uh, liberation through uh, concentration, or liberation through wisdom. So these are uh, very common terms used in uh, forest tradition discourses: panyavimuti, ceto vimuti. And sometimes, along with a, another one, a, a third one, which is sadha vimuti, or the path of devotion, or, or the path of faith. Um, 
and uh, in, in I mean different people again different teachers talk about these in different ways but generally it's understood that Panya Vimuti is quicker and Cheto Vimuti is slower but that you get more fringe benefits with the Cheto Vimuti uh, that that is the, the, the development of, of the uh, sort of liberation through the absorptions of, of mind. Panya Vimuti is more through the development of insight. Um, it's sort of it's a quicker way up the mountain, whereas the, the Cheta Vimuti is more of a, a winding path. And Sada Vimuti is supposed to be even slower, but is much more accessible. So uh, as you find in most uh, Buddhist countries and indeed in most religious traditions, the, the path of, of faith and devotion is what most people can relate to. And, uh, the the, the uh, common practice of the religion is around making offerings, um, uh, paying respects, chanting, bowing, uh, kind of the, the devotional expression of, of faith and vandana, that sense of, of uh, honoring and um, uh, that uh, what, what you, in the Hindu tradition what's called bhakti yoga. Uh, that is what uh, a vast majority of people can relate to, as it's such a sort of emotionally uh, positive. It's like a very, very positive and uh, gladdening way of working with emotion and to, to tie your emotional nature to spiritual goals and spiritual qualities. So, uh, sadhavimuti is there isn't, I think, a scriptural reference to it, but it's it's one of those um, terms that gets gets brought up and also just within the um, the 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 sort of uh, society, Buddhist, Buddhist cultures at large, it's a very powerful force. So, say within uh, northern Buddhist tradition, the um, uh, say the recitation of Namo um, Amitabha uh, Buddha, the uh, like the Pure Land Buddhism, is very much uh, a path of the of Sadhavimuti, like faith in the in the the Buddha Amitabha, faith in the Pure Land, and the recitation of the mantra. Of course, they they overlap because you know you need to have you need to be able to concentrate to keep your mantra going and to sustain faith and so on. But um, that uh, um, would be a, a, I would say as a sadhavimuti kind of path. So to continue, however, these two expressions are not simply equivalent in value relative to realization. While freedom by wisdom, panyavimuti, refers to the realization of nibbana, freedom of the mind, chetavimuti, unless further specified as unshakable, akupa, does not imply the same. So that, uh, just like with Godika, he experienced some chetavimuti, but it wasn't unshakable, it was shakable. So he kind of, uh, there was a, uh, a momentary experience of, of liberation, and then he got distracted, and then another experience of liberation, he got distracted. So this um, akupa cetovimuti is unshakable um, freedom of the mind. Uh, akupa means uh, um, can't be disturbed, and so that when um, when a cetovimuti is is uh, unshakable, then that is equivalent uh, uh, to an equivalent realization. So freedom of the mind can also connote temporary experiences of mental freedom, such as the attainment of the fourth absorption or the development of the divine abodes, the Brahma-viharas. So they're, they're, um, the, the, the um, qualities of loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, upeka, serenity, uh, that those are also, they are um, sublime states of mind. They're called the beautiful abiding places for the heart. 
um, they are uh, they're limitless, or they're, they're also called the immeasurables, the the, the, the boundless qualities. Uh, as in the chanting book, now let us uh, the, the boundless qualities shine forth. So that the the Buddha points out, yeah, these are, are immeasurable. They are extremely wholesome, um, but they are also their conditioned states, and so that they are um, uh, they're not. Uh, intrinsically uh, liberating uh, or, uh, in and of themselves, but they they uh, they help lead to uh, to liberation when they are developed. So thus, this passage is presenting not two different approaches to realization, but two aspects of the meditative path. Uh, one of which is not sufficient by itself to bring realization. So he's saying that uh, on its own, the cetta vimuti, that development of of concentration. Uh, on its own uh, is not capable of, of bringing realization so that it can bring ext- extremely bright and uh, beautiful uh, mind states but it can uh, but even those high states of absorption of like the the brahma viharas that those um, those uh, states of uh, great clarity and uh, and brightness or the uh, the even the formless jhanas, they're not, they're not intrinsically liberated states. So it always needs the quality of insight and wisdom to uh, bring about the, the uh, full liberation. Another relevant discourse is the Susima Sutta, which reports various monks declaring realization. Since these monks at the same time denied having attained supernatural powers, this passage has sometimes been understood to imply that full awakening can be attained merely by intellectual reflection. That's uh, uh, um, Richard Gombrich's take on it, apparently. <laughs> In reality, however, uh, and this is, this, uh, and I think what Venerable Analio is pointing out, that uh, wisdom is not just intellectual reflection. It's not just an intellectual activity. It's the, the development of insight isn't just thinking about things. <laughs> it's a... Uh, it's the use of, of wisdom to cut through uh, ignorance. Um, and, uh, but uh, sometimes, as he points out, that, that is mistaken for just the, sort of the more armchair Buddhist approach of just sort of thinking things through and coming to a, a, uh, uh, some state of, of uh, realization just through the, the use of the intellect. But there has to be, I would say, an absolute, an absolute necessity is also recognizing the limits of uh, the intellect, and so the intellect uh, on and wise reflection is a tool, um, but it's a uh, it, uh, there needs to be also um, that the penetrative wisdom that uh, say actually cuts through the the, the delusion. The, the wisdom is not the 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 concept. The, you know, the wisdom is the clear seeing that the concept helps to support. So in reality, however. The monk's declaration that they were only freed by wisdom, Panyavimuti, indicates that they were not in possession of the immaterial meditative attainments. It doesn't mean that they gained realization without meditating at all by a purely intellectual approach. And uh, so, um, the uh, these two are also there was this expression, um, uh, dry enlightenment and wet enlightenment. That we are talking about, and, and so that uh, the the and that, this is an area that Lumpur Cha would speak about sometimes. He say, you know, wet enlightenment is enlightenment through 
the development of, of uh, powers of, of concentration and, and deep states of, of absorption. And so it's wet insofar as um, you have the uh, psychic powers or other aspects uh, that sort of come along with that. Whereas uh, Panyavimuti would be uh, the dry enlightenment, so that it's, it's liberation through uh, the development of wisdom, uh, insight, um, but there isn't so much of the development of concentration, so the, the, the psychic powers are not, uh, uh, are not so developed. Um, it's, it's not a cut and dried thing, so it doesn't mean to say that, that people who um, are, um, say, uh, wisdom types necessarily don't meditate so much or not so accomplished in meditation but it, it can be more also, uh, like just a personality type as well so that an interesting comparison is uh, Venerable Sariputta so, uh, and, and Moggallana so both of them are the two chief disciples of the Buddha um, so they were both extremely accomplished meditators but Sariputta never developed any psychic powers and he was as I said the Buddha praised his ability that he could um, enter any kind of state of, of concentration or absorption and, uh, at will, but yet he he never developed any psychic powers. But uh, Mahamogalana, um, who was uh, similarly very accomplished, developed all, you know, all kinds of, of psychic abilities. And there's this very charming little discourse where they are the the two of them are sitting in the forest, and it's uh, it's on the full moon day, and they've just shaved their heads. And then these, uh, uh, as it says, it's called. Uh, these two yakas were flying south on some business, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, they were flying through the air on some yaka business, and they uh, they saw the two of these these monks sitting in this this clearing in the forest with their their heads, their newly shaven heads, shining in the moonlight. And so this one yaka thought, uh, "I'm going to go and strike that um, that that uh, shaveling on the head." And his friend said, oh, I wouldn't do that. Those are disciples of the Samana Gotama, and they're, they're monks of great, uh, great power. And you, know, you can get yourself into, into trouble if you do that. And the other one says, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And so uh, Venerable uh, Mahamogalana sees all this happening. He sees these yakas flying through the air, and, and hears this conversation. So he gets a bit worried, and then the, one of them comes down, and he smacks... Uh, um, Venerable Sariputta on the head with his club and gives him a huge blow, but the the club just sort of bounces off, and um, and doesn't harm Sariputta at all. And then the ground opens up, and then this yaka is sort of swallowed into a sheet of flame, and disappears down into the lower realms. So um, <clears throat> and so uh, the, in the flow of the story, you can you can imagine Mahamogalana going, "Whoa, that was serious," or the Pali equivalent, and uh, and so then he's just amazed that Sariputta is just sort of just sitting there. So after a time, then the, the Sariputta opens his eyes, and and so Moggallana says, "So uh, uh, how are you feeling?" He says, oh, "Fine." Why do you ask? Well, and he describes this incident: how this this yaka came down and clobbered him around the head with a, and it says something like, uh, "With a blow that would have felled a mighty bull elephant." And this, this yaka came down and he clubbed you around the head and this, this club just bounced off and, and then this ground opened up and this yaka was swallowed into a sheet of flame and taken down to the lower realms. And, and, and you, you sure you don't, you know, it didn't hurt you at all? He said, well, I, I do feel a slight headache. 
<laughs> nothing else. And, and then uh, Moggallana says, oh, it is wonderful, it is marvellous, it's amazing that the Venerable Sariputta's state of absorption is such that even when a yaka hits him around the head with a, with a blow that would have felled a mighty bull elephant, the, the Venerable One merely ex- expresses the fact he feels a slight headache. This is wonderful, this is marvellous, this is amazing. And then uh, Sariputta says, well, to me it's, it's wonderful, it's marvellous, it's amazing that, that you can see all this stuff happening because says, I can't even see a little mud sprite let alone a, 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 a yaka or any of these kind of things going on. Um, and yet you, uh, Maha Moggallana, you have the ability to see in great detail all these events in different realms and uh, beings of different natures that are completely invisible, uh, unknown to me. And then it says, and so, th- and so th- these, two be- these two great beings um, congratulating each other, they spent the, uh, spent, uh, continued the night in meditation together. It's a very a nice little interlude. Whether you think these stories are true or not, it's another thing. But uh, that represents the, that you know, Sariputta was a great meditator, highly accomplished and um, praised very, very liberally by the Buddha, um, and, that, and yet didn't have any psychic powers at all. <coughs> and so that the, um, but his specialization was in analytical wisdom. So that his even though he was a good meditator, he hadn't put his attention into developing powers. Instead, he put his attention into understanding the, the, the nature of mind and how it works. And again, there's a, I think it's in the Abhidhamma uh, where the Buddha says, uh, he's asked Venerable Sariputta to explain some particular process about the operating of, of, of mind and, and its structure. And then Sariputta gives us this long, detailed explanation of the structure of a mind moment and all the different elements that go to, to, uh, to make up a single mind moment. And the Buddha gives this analogy. He says it's like if you had a dish full of water and you, you designated or you, or you described where every, every particle of water had come from to arrive in that, that bowl, this whole sort of... So too, Venerable Sariputta describes the, the nature of mind and the origins and causes and effects of all aspects of mind in, with exactly the same kind of accuracy and, and comprehensive quality. So he prays, sorry, but he, but he never he never criticized him for not having psychic powers. <laughs> um, so that it's... Uh, uh, and Ajahn Chah used to say, at least uh, thus have I heard, that, that he taught... Uh, the, what Ajahn Chah taught was the way of Sariputta rather than the way of Moggallana, so that... He was. He didn't emphasize psychic powers or make much of that, and he wouldn't. Uh, he he wouldn't talk about that kind of stuff, and he wouldn't um, uh, make anything of it. Or someone uh, um, you know, was asking about that, he would just not engage in conversation about it, or he would just um, uh, say dismiss it as something that was uh, irrelevant. And in in the, the um, normal currency of life in in Thailand, as in many Buddhist countries. That whole psychic realm has got major value. It's like most people are very excited about protective charms and you know, getting some the the kind of mojo from the, some teacher or some um, uh, astrologer or some psychic healer that will will, will you know, cure their illness or get them through their exams or pay off their debts or or make sure the the roof of the house doesn't fall in. It's a Big, big business. <laughs> you know the uh, the most um, uh, the a- the amulets with the highest. I haven't looked for a long time, for quite a few years. But the question came up a number of years ago, and I, I looked up 
a reference to the the cost of a of a the most sort of powerful the, the amulets with the highest mojo content in they have the, the the highest reputation for for protection and such in in Thailand and it was uh, at that time which is maybe four or five years ago when I last looked it was something like 90 million baht one had just been sold for 90 million baht which is about 2 million pounds for an, an amulet 2 million quid for a, an amulet that was five years ago so it's probably <laughs> probably three or four by now so uh, People love that stuff, but Ajahn Chah steered very firmly and clearly away from that. And um, as I think it's also one of the reasons why his teaching was appealing to Westerners, uh, for whom that sort of magical and uh, superstitious side of things is, is not very meaningful or interesting, valuable. So it's, I think one of the... Because he didn't make much of that in himself and didn't value it or talk about it or make uh, any, any kind of big deal of it, then um, uh, it's um, made his teaching very practical and accessible, and um, um, the, uh, and he would like to emphasize the um, the, the real value of it, so that uh, <coughs> he would um, yeah encourage people to understand that you got the four noble truths. This is the this is the greatest protection you got. <laughs> the five precepts is what's really going to protect you, not this amulet. You know. Pay as much as you like for it, but the, the precepts will protect you much better than you know, a little piece of clay and metal. So, just to finish the chapter, then, a similar problem is sometimes seen in regard to the Kosambi Sutta, where a monk declared that he had personally, sorry, a monk declared that he had personal realization of dependent co-arising, Paticca Samuppada, although he was not an arahant. This passage becomes intelligible if one follows the commentarial explanation according to which the monk in question was only a once-returner, a Sakadagami. The point here is that the personal realization of the principle of dependent co-arising is not a characteristic of full awakening only, but is already a feature of stream entry. Instead of perceiving these passages as expressing, quote, an underlying tension, unquote, between two different paths to realization, they simply describe different aspects of what is basically one approach. And uh, he, he quotes uh, um, uh, a, a piece, uh, something written by Rupert Gettin about these sort of two paths theories and how, that, uh, how they, they really are, um, uh, as he points out, uh, rather than being two different paths, they, are sim- they simply describe different aspects of what is basically one approach. As a matter of fact, full awakening requires a purification of both the cognitive and the affective aspects of mind, so both the, the um, intellect and the heart, or the emotional nature, if you like. Although on theoretical examination, these two aspects of the path might appear different, in actual practice, they tend to converge and supplement each other. This is neatly summarized in the Patisambhida Magga, which emphasizes the importance of appreciating the essential similarity between calm and insight meditation in terms of their function. A practitioner might develop one or the other aspect to a higher degree at different times, 
but in the final stages of practice, both calm and insight need to be combined in order to reach the final aim, full awakening, the destruction of both passion and ignorance. It's also uh, um, uh, in that um, the uh, uh, what, uh, what what paths sort of one chooses or what emphasizes is a lot to do with individual um, capacity. Some people have much more of a, a of a say an ability for concentration, uh, and uh, the, the the mind focuses um, and concentrates uh, absorbs quite easily. Is is uh, it's a, a very um, natural and um, open pathway to them. And for others, that, that uh, concentration and absorption is very, very difficult, but they have a very sharp intellect. And so they can use the reflective mind, the, the, the investigative qualities, the Dhamma Vijaya, far more easily. And so that, uh, that w- it's, in a way, it's working with your disposition rather than uh, often what can, can happen is that someone might have a very sharp intellect and, and be uh, trying desperately to... to develop absorption but it's just they're not built that way it's like if you're tone deaf and you're determined to learn the violin you can practice for hours and hours and hours and hours but the the ability to hear the the sound uh, accurately just isn't there so that uh, um, it's a, a bit of a waste of time so uh, one of the, the the I think another of the reasons why Ajahn Chah's teaching is quite accessible even though he would um, uh, emf- you know would Emphasize the the reflective element um, and the use of, of investigation quite a lot. That yeah, he would uh, teach all these different aspects of the path, and there was a, a, like an entry point for for people of all different dispositions. And it was it was kind of interesting uh, how um, when I, I first went to the, the to the monastery in Thailand, Wat Pananachat, talking with the Local people, the, many of the villagers had far, far more accomplished um, meditation practice in terms of concentration, um, and that they were able to to enter into absorption. And uh, they, even though they had the, uh, they were looking after the farm and raising sort of eight or ten kids, and they think, well, how come? Yeah, how come he, yeah, he's uh, able to uh, enter jhana, and our, you know it's, it's, it's amazing how come our concentration is so good. Uh, and most of the the Westerners in the monastery were just sort of <laughs> uh, full of ideas and opinions, and and uh, struggling to to develop much uh, concentration at all, but had uh, uh, say very highly trained uh, in the main part, very so highly trained intellects, and had a lot of knowledge and and could understand or, or, or could uh, uh, say navigate the, the the teachings and understand intellectually very easily and <clears throat> so the, the the one of the reasons would be that was they, and I remember uh, this came coming up for discussion back then and they said well for many of the villagers they, their mind is very the very reason is because they don't have much education <laughs> they, they haven't they haven't cluttered their minds up with a lot of stuff and they, uh, many of them have been living according to the precepts for many years. They have a great deal of faith. And so all the conditions are there for them to be able to concentrate. They might have a lot of responsibilities, but they don't have a lot of, uh, of intellectual um, complexity. Uh, they haven't read a whole pile of books. They haven't got all sorts of views and opinions about things. So um, they've got a lot of faith. They keep the precepts. So 
many of the conditions for good concentration are there, so that um, they they find it quite uh, quite easy to absorb the mind. But then, for them, the development of insight and investigation is is more challenging. It's not it's not naturally the uh, accessible to to sort of pick up and explore and examine, reflect on on mind states and experience. And uh, whereas for for many Westerners, they've got uh, the, the opposite is true, that we've got a, a very highly uh, um, conditioned uh, to be intellectual, to think in terms of concepts and to juggle ideas and to, to, uh, um, to have the mind con- strongly conditioned by Western education. Even if you think you haven't had, you haven't had much education still, uh, uh, having to, to go through school and to, to learning to, to read and write and to, to create... And to, uh, to, to write essays, to, to think things through, to make arguments and such like, to is is a quite an, a substantial intellectual training in its own right. So that uh, the, you could find in uh, uh, in Ajahn Chah's teaching, there's a sort of space for for everybody, whether you happen to be inclined towards uh, reflection and investigation, or you happen to be inclined towards uh, concentration. That you could. Uh, <coughs> you know, apply the teaching equally well, whatever your disposition happened to be, and so that, uh, uh, and rather like the analogy of uh, being tone deaf but being determined to learn the violin, it's like, well, maybe give up on the violin and take up chess instead. You know? <laughs> maybe that'll, that'll work better for you. If, uh, but uh, that's this, that's just not uh, your domain, and uh, and using the the, the what is your Sort of natural capacity or your your sort of strongest ability to make that something that you put to work because many uh, uh, this this comes up a lot teaching meditation teaching on retreats and people bemoaning the fact that uh, oh my you know I can't stop thinking if only I could stop thinking then I would be able to to meditate and that they're treating thought like a kind of brain disease a sort of infection like a a, a very advanced ear infection that sort of soaked all the way through and, the, and, the, and then the idea that if I could just stop thinking I would be happy well it might be true to a certain extent but as Ajahn Chah would point out well, it, you know, a brick doesn't have a lot of thinking but it's not enlightened <laughs> you know, a chicken doesn't have a lot of thoughts but you know, it's, not, it's not enlightened and so it's not a matter of, of just stopping thought otherwise just you know, taking drugs to, to stop thinking would be sufficient but rather Learning to understand the nature of thought, to to learn to keep it in perspective, and to learn to to know, you know to the nature of thinking, and to not believe in it, that's a, a part of the the cause. And then over time, then the ability to to just slow the thinking process down, and to um, to be a master of thought rather than be mastered by it, is a, is a, a natural result as time goes by. Uh, I think that it's the, the the last part of that, that chapter and and is very useful in terms of considering well what 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 sort of type am I am I a, a thinking type or am I a, a concentrating type am I a, 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 you know what's what's my disposition and then rather than think rather than assuming that thought is somehow an obstruction or an obstacle uh, put it to work make it make it work for you so rather than than uh, uh, assuming that just because the mind is prone to thinking that that's in, that's a hindrance or that's an obstacle, make the 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 capacity to think and investigate something that supports the concentration that supports the 
the the the process of liberation. And as uh, in a talk of Ajahn Mahabur's the wisdom conditions samadhi, that uh, yeah that if it's if it's so active and so prominent, you've spent so many years developing it. Well, put it to work, <laughs> uh, and then it it can really support the uh, the practice in a very direct way, rather than just being seen as something that is. Uh, an unfortunate ailment or a, a, something that's a, 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 a hindrance in and of itself. not coming to mind immediately. You said concentration and wisdom or insight is like you have one person carrying a log on one side and another one on the other, it's just easier to carry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they work together. Also carrying a table is another good analogy. Carrying a table on on your own is really hard, but you have two two people lifting it, it makes it that much easier. Okay.